Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 172 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features a photographer and videographer who has found a niche in combining her passions for storytelling, writing, and photography to make a living in the landscape photography arena. Elizabeth Brentano started her career in the entertainment news space and transitioned to writing blogs for travel and food. It was in that space that she fell in love with photography. She is also very passionate about conservation issues and created a wonderful documentary film called In the Shadow of Lions, where she examines the balance between social media, conservation, and tourism as it relates to big cats in Africa. Elizabeth and I discussed some interesting topics this week, including how she found herself in the landscape photography space, how her editing style has evolved over time, the impacts of social media on creativity and relationship building, her documentary film in the shadow of lions and much more over on patreon this week join elizabeth and i for a bonus discussion while financially supporting the podcast we discuss her approach to gaining more authentic engagement on social media through vulnerability and honesty well speaking of authenticity if you're looking for a space where authenticity is the norm and where inspiration is doled out on the regular i highly encourage you to become a member on nature photographers network NPN is a great space where you can get honest critique of your work, engage with well-known photographers on a wide variety of topics, participate in weekly themed contests, and read in-depth articles from some of the top minds in our field. Listeners can get a 60-day free trial to NPN by following the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get to the show. Elizabeth Brentano, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I have to give a shout out to uh, our listener and my friend, and he's also a patron of the podcast on Patreon, Michael Rung, for not only suggesting you come on the show, but also somehow magically getting us in touch with each other. So thank you, Michael. Yeah. And he was actually the one who followed up with me and he's like, didn't he reach out to you? And I was like, oh, I need to follow up with Matt. So, <laughs> well, I'm, that's awesome. That's, I mean, that's how this works is, you know, this is a, it's a very small community actually. So, um, what I found is the cool thing about the podcast is that I get to connect with people I've never met before and, and really just get to know them. And what you learn is you probably know a lot of the same people and have been to a lot of the same places and have a lot of the same experiences. So it's, it's fun. And I was going to say, I think when you first reached out to me, it was sometime last fall and I had just been diagnosed with melanoma and I had a pretty gnarly surgery to remove it. And I was not responding to emails and uh, just, I was kind of having a hard time with that. And I was like, oh, I should really kind of get back into my email and follow up with people. And it was just like dozens and dozens that just <laughs> piled up. So, and I, I think I had said to you, I was like, you've been on my list of people to get back to, but, but yeah, I've healed up from that and I'm definitely ready to you know get back out there this summer. So Oh, it's awesome. Well, glad you are recovering. Sorry that that happened. That's a that's a crazy experience, huh? Yeah, no, it's definitely good to uh, you know, be aware of the kinds of spots you have on your skin. Get yourself checked. Um, I've usually I'm usually pretty good about wearing sunscreen, um, but you know it can happen to anybody. So if you see something that looks suspicious, get it checked out because you never know. So yeah, I've had 
dozens of moles removed in my life. So I get that. <laughs> it's never fun to come out of the dermatology office with all kinds of band-aids on you. So <laughs> well, it was also like kind of oddly fascinating too. I mean, they cut a pretty large chunk of skin out. It was probably about like two inches by two inches. It was a circle and it was probably about like half a centimeter deep. So I had like a crater on my ankle and they didn't stitch it back up because that's my ankle. So it was what's called a wide excision. And it was, you know, I had to wash it in like a bucket. Ugh. And like if I had my leg like sort of, you know, completely horizontally, the water would just like stay in the crater in my ankle. <laughs> so oh gross. My was, I, I took pictures of it. It's, it's, I mean, you have to have a pretty strong stomach to look at it, but it's, it's kind of amazing what the human body can do and what it's capable of and how it heals. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we could talk about all of the weird surgeries that we've had and all <laughs> we that. We don't have but... to talk about that. I'm probably grossing people out. So. <laughs> That's all good. So for people that haven't heard of you before, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I would say that I'm more of a nature photographer than anything. Um, I really don't love shooting portraits. Um, I dabble <laughs> I dabble with wildlife photography. I don't consider myself to be particularly great at shooting products. So I would definitely, yeah, I identify as a nature photographer. Um, I used to work as a producer, um, both for TV and websites, um, things that had nothing to do with nature. <laughs> so I, I used to work for Entertainment Tonight. So that was, uh, really? celeb, celeb news was my thing for almost a decade. Oh, my love, yeah. my wife would love to talk to you. She's, she's one of those people that you want on your trivia team because she knows all of this random useless information about everyone that's famous. Yeah. I mean, keeping up with the Kardashians, I never watched that show, but <laughs> um, I knew everything that was going on in, in that community. And it was just, uh, you know, it was, it was good while it lasted, but it was also, you know, at a certain point you are, you know, in a career path and you're like, this isn't what I really want to be doing. And it also kind of coincided with my hours being cut at that job. And I was like, what do I really want to be doing? And that's sort of how I got into photography. So I made the move from entertainment news blogging to food and travel blogging. And then I was kind of like, well, why am I having to go through stock sites to find photos when I'm actually, you know, more of a, I was more of a hobby photographer at the time. But um, I was starting to get out more and hike and travel. And I was like, well, I could just use my photos in these pieces. So why don't I try to market myself as more of a photographer? And that's kind of how it transitioned into doing tourism work and then almost exclusively shooting for tourism bureaus. And I, just, I still do some blogging, but um, I, I'm not writing blogs for food publishers anymore about, you know, the best Starbucks desserts all over the world. So <laughs> 20, 20 things you wouldn't believe Starbucks puts in their coffee. I mean, there's some pretty wild things all over the world. Like the, the some of the Starbucks desserts in Japan are they look like works of art. So I mean, there's uh, definitely. I, I was just making fun of like the catchy headlines that you know blog sites like to use to get you to click on their their articles. I was a clickbait writing queen, so that's. Um... <laughs> <laughs> hey, it works. That's the funny thing about it. Yeah. Well, some of the pieces were actually pretty enjoyable to write. And I was, you know, able to kind of weave in travel content there as well, like amazing winter destinations where I'd see stuff and be like, oh, actually, I should probably figure out a way to get here. And um, it's how I ended up going to Iceland. So that was, you know, um, there's, you know, it, you can do some trip research in your writing for these articles. But yeah, at the end of the day, you're just sitting in front of a computer and you're like, this isn't really satisfying. So. When did you uh, make that transition from entertainment news to food and travel blogging to photography? 
So the my job in entertainment news was um, reduced in 2014. I was still hanging on to that part-time. And so it was 2015 that I was kind of doing a mix of part-time entertainment news blogging, part-time food and travel blogging. And then towards the end of 2015 is when I got my first assignment shooting for a tourism bureau. And wow. from there, by 2016, 2017, it was almost exclusively just producing content for tourism bureaus, outdoor brands, and sometimes for publishers, but I wasn't working for a publisher consistently um, then. So, so yeah, That's it was a, like a two to three year time frame. But That's incredible. I, it's so funny. I don't know. There's probably a lot of people out there like me that forever, they just sit back and they're like, oh, I take pretty good photos. How come no one wants to hire me to take photos? Like, what? What was your secret to like prying open that lid and just making that transition so quickly and successfully? Um, I definitely would consider myself to be a perfectionist. Um, but I also look back at some of my old photos and I'm just like, what was I thinking? This edit is terrible. But I think we all we all have that. Um, Still, every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely gotten better. But I, when I dig back into the 2015, 2016 archives, I'm just like, how many grad filters did I have on this sky in Lightroom? Like, come on. Like, this is just, and the sky wasn't that color. It wasn't this pink. It was really just blue. And uh, so I think, you know, there's, <laughs> <laughs> I, and I, yeah, and I look at some of my earlier work and I'm just like, how did I get hired? These are terrible. But I mean, you know, it also has to start from somewhere. And you, you also have to look at sort of like what the trends in photography were. And I think for some of these things, like the really dark, moody edits were a bit more popular then. So it was kind of easier to, to, you know, um, have that style and get hired. But um, I think for me, I was just really determined to make this work. And um, I also, uh, sold everything that I owned, moved out of my place in LA. So definitely cut some costs too. Um, I realized, you know, if I really want to make this sacrifice, I have to be willing to give up some of the things that, you know, like a really nice apartment in LA and shopping and, you know, all these extras and invest that more towards my business and say, you know, I want to make sure that if I don't get hired for two months, I have, you know, enough money saved up that I can live off of that. And, you know, also, you know, investing in the right equipment, like, you know, you, if you spend, uh, you know, I'm a girl, I used to get my hair done all the time. Like if you spend $1,200 a year on getting your hair cut and highlighted, that's, you know, that's a lens. So it's just, right. you know, <laughs> so. That's funny when I, um, I'm a balding 41 year old man. And at some point in my early thirties, I decided that I didn't need to get haircuts anymore. I could just do it myself with a with clippers, you know, and, and then you look at the budget and you're like, I just saved like $500 a year. <laughs> I know. And you know, I have just, I don't color my hair anymore. I have pretty long hair. I go to super cuts, you get it cut and it's like 30 bucks with a tip. And you know, that's, that saves me so much money a year. So it's just, I think, um, you know, in general, it's just about being smart and just planning ahead as well. I said, you know, if this doesn't work, um, I'll just go back into online publishing. And that's also why I clung to those part-time blogging jobs because it did give me that supplemental income. So I think like, yeah, my advice to anyone who wants to try to make that move is, is really plan ahead, make sure you're covered. And, you know, don't just assume that because, you know, there's social media and like all these brands want to hire people that you're going to get work consistently. Like you won't, it's scary, but you know, again, if you, if you prepare and give yourself sort of a cushion, a safety cushion, like it, it will work out. Yeah, I think a lot of people like myself, uh, they look at their situation and, you know, they've got a mortgage and a family and kids and debt. And they're like, I just, I can't, I can't do it. 
like the logic just can't make the connection. Um, so I think that's where a lot of people sit is they have those aspirations, but there's all of these barriers that prevent them from doing it. Yeah. And I'd also say this, you know, like having worked in television, having worked in online publishing for a decade, you know, I had some really wonderful bosses. I also had a couple of really awful bosses who were just, you know, like the kind of people, managers who would just, you know, make you cry at work. Um, And I just, I think, and that was sort of like the last publishing job that I had that was in an office. That was the situation that I had there. And I was like, you know what? I don't ever want to work for someone again if I am not able to really contribute to the conversation. And, you know, not just on a creative level, but just to feel respected. And so I love working for myself. And, you know, like I said, I've had to make a lot of sacrifices and it's, you know, being freelance is tough. Like you don't always have consistent work, especially right now. Like I think a lot of people are freaking out. So, um, I mean, and now it's definitely, if you're, if you want to, you know, dip your toe into what freelance work is like, I mean, now's definitely not the best time to be (laughs) experimenting with that. But I think, yeah, I was just really motivated to be my own boss and have control of my schedule and be able to have the kind of life that I wanted to have, which is, you know, spending a lot of time outdoors and traveling and, um, you know, connecting with awesome people who can help educate me and inspire me. So I love that. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little jealous, but uh, I'm also just, I don't know. We've never met in person, but I can already say like, I'm proud that you made that choice because it takes bravery and, um, it's inspiring to just hear people like you tell that story that, you know what, I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I said, I'm doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's, you know, I'm trying to think of like, have I ever regretted it? There's been like a couple of times where I'm just like, God, I miss my apartment in LA. It was or like, I, oh, had, I couldn't pay my rent. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And I, but I had the neighbors on either side of me were so nice and quiet. I had like a little tree like outside of my balcony. And it was just like such a nice, cozy space. And there's been times where I'm like, man, I wish I could go back to that. I don't have a permanent residence. And I haven't right. since I moved out of LA. And I do short term rentals and stay with friends and family and stuff. But you know, as I've gotten older, I'm kind of like, oh, I really would kind of like to settle down somewhere. But I'm also like, if I'm gone 75% of the time, can I really justify owning a place? And, right. you know, especially with the economy right now, I'm like, hmm, do I really want to buy something? Probably not. Uh, maybe in a couple months when the, the market's completely crashed. But <laughs> I mean, you think it would, but this houses here are still selling. It's wild. Same here. Same here. So we'll see what happens. But you know, in the meantime, like the short term rentals are great and all but But yeah, I do like having the freedom to wander. And, you know, I have my towns that are sort of like my favorite, favorite places to be. And I usually do short term rentals in the high desert here in Southern California in the winter. So like Joshua Tree, Yucca Valley, 29 Palms, that's kind of my zone. Um, And then yeah, March through November, I'm pretty much in the Mountain West. So um, everywhere from yeah, Utah to Canada is kind of my territory. And I love it. So open this jar yet but i'm gonna see if you're willing to go there and if you're not it's cool but uh have you found that your lifestyle of travel and kind of nomadic life is that made it difficult to mm, find and develop (laughs) relationships with people (laughs) yeah i was like i know that that, as soon as you said that i was like i know this that's where this is going um yeah it has but you also have to keep in mind i came straight from the la dating scene which really isn't much better than yeah i mean maybe it's this tinder (laughs) yeah hey i was on tinder in 2013 back when everyone was on it um 
you know, I'm on, uh, I'm on a dating app now. It's called Raya. It's like a little bit weird, but I mean, I've, I've met some really great friends on it. Um, it's, there's kind of like a selection process where like you have to be referred by someone to get on it and stuff, but it's also kind of a joke. Cause there's people on there who I'm like, how did you get on here? But, um, <laughs> cause you're kind of a creep, but, um, no, like I, I've, um, you know, it's still a way to meet people and connect with people, but I would definitely say the frequency uh, with which I'm like matching with people and actually going on dates is definitely much less since mm-hmm. I travel constantly and I am also picky too. Like I don't like, you know, <laughs> if right. you're not, a, if you're not outdoorsy, it's not going to work out for me. Uh, <laughs> so um, and I'm definitely open to like, if someone's never been on a backpacking trip and they're like, you know, they have a good attitude and I think they can handle it, then yeah, like I'll take them on their first backpacking trip. But like, I'm, you know, I definitely would like to, uh, be pursuing a relationship with someone who has like a similar style of, um, you know, wanting to, well, I can work remotely too. So that's a thing. Like if you can't work remotely and you aren't interested in traveling, it's really not going to work. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have, um, I haven't been in a relationship for like two years. Um, but, and again, I'm picky. So if I'm not in a relationship, I'm not with anybody. Um, but it was, you know, someone who I had met when I was filming my documentary in Africa and we really hit it off. And, um, he's like, I really like you. I want to come hang out with you. And I'm like, well, this isn't going to work. And then he ended up coming to the U S for a month and we road tripped around. And, um, and I felt like, okay, well I can do the long distance thing for one to two months. If I know that I have a month or two with someone. Um, so it's definitely possible. It's just about what you want to put into it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, being honest with the other person I think is really important. Um, yeah. Have you, have you seen free solo? I have, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, obviously, the climbing and the, the the videography of that film is amazing. But one of the more, for me personally, what I really liked and enjoyed about it was seeing him struggle with the relationships with other people, like, and and the discomfort that other people had in his lifestyle. I thought that was really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, and I think too, you look at the way their relationship has sort of um, progressed. And obviously I don't know either of them, but um, it seems like she kind of helped him. I don't know. Like, I don't want to say like, you know, come to reality, but like kind (laughs) of get him to consider things a bit more for, you know, his friends and family rather than just, just for him. And I think like, but without compromising anything, of course. So I think like, it's really about finding a good match with someone that can bring out the best in you you know, and, and you can do that long distance. You can do that if there are even like big differences, but, but yeah, you have to be willing to work with that. And I I think, you know, I've thought this before, but I'm like, okay, what if I met someone who I thought was just amazing and they had a job that they couldn't leave. And I, you know, again, like I travel 75% of the time. And even if we lived together, I was only going to be there 25% of the time. And they weren't resentful of me being gone all the time. And obviously like, I'm, I'm a good girl. I'm faithful. I wouldn't, they wouldn't have to worry about me cheating when I was on the road. And if I didn't have to worry about them, as long as we prioritize the time that we spent together and found ways to make it work when I was gone, that's doable to me. And I know there's probably someone out there who that's doable for them too. So I think they might you know, be listening right now. They might be listening right now, or they might be a van lifer that I'm going to meet in uh, Idaho this summer. So we'll there see. There you go. But yeah, no, I'm definitely like, I would like to, uh, you know, settle down and find someone, but I'm really, I don't want to have kids and um, I don't really want to be in a city, but you know, I lived in LA for 10 years, so it's, I could handle it, but sure. Yeah, I think it's just, um, you know, not wanting to have kids has actually made this a lot easier for me because I don't feel 
the same sort of pressure as some women to settle down. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I also, I like my independence. So it's, um, yeah, I think when I was in my late twenties, I had a completely different perspective on all this, but yeah. but yeah, no, but you can still find awesome people. And I think, you know, it's also like, maybe, maybe I'll meet someone on an online dating app. Maybe I'll just randomly meet them at a grocery store in a small town somewhere. So I don't, well, you know, you yeah. Well, we don't have to talk about your your dating life for yeah, that's for probably an hour. enough. <laughs> but I do think I do think that's an interesting subject, especially for people that travel a lot. I know I've talked to other photographers who who are gone a lot, and I think that's that's just, it's just a it's almost I wouldn't say it's a sacrifice necessarily, but it's definitely part of the equation. Oh, it is. Yeah, no, it definitely is. Mm-hmm. And it's something people are curious about too, because I feel like I'm. It's not that I, I I really hide my private life, but I don't broadcast certain things. Like if I'm dating someone, I'm not necessarily going to be broadcasting that on social media. Um, and maybe even on like my Facebook page, I have 300 friends on my Facebook page. Like that's very much a private page for me. Um, and I maybe wouldn't even post it there. It's not because I don't care about it or I want to hide it. It's just like, I don't, I don't, I guess, I don't know. Like I, so much of our lives these days, I feel like unless we post it on social media, it didn't happen, but I... I don't really have that mentality with, with some aspects of my personal life. So, Oh, well, man, what a perfect segue to that is to talk about the role of social media in uh, photography and creativity and running a business. Because I, I know we've talked about it on the podcast before, but it's something that I still every single day of my life struggle with in terms of how much time do I really want to spend promoting things on social media and like the measurability of, of that time and effort just for me never has seemed to really pay off that much. So I'm just curious for you, like what are some of the pros and cons of social media as a full-time creative? Well, I think we kind of have to look at the evolution of it because Instagram and Facebook um, back in 2012, 2013 are I mean, it's almost like it's a completely different platform Yeah. because, you know, when you introduce um, monetization, that changes everything. And, you know, for me, when I first got on Instagram before I was even a photographer, this is back when I was still writing about Kim Kardashian and, you know, who she was dating and, you know, I don't even think she was married to Kanye yet. Um, and, you know, I would post photos of like food and my cat and um, like a really cool rug with my feet on it and just like just stuff like that and you know it was a private page for me and then of course you know as things kind of started to change a little bit and this is again before ads were really introduced um and I would start posting nature photography and this is by like you know 2014-2015 start posting um you know images of wildlife and landscapes and I was using hashtags but not because I wanted to get likes on my photos because I wanted to see who else was posting in the, uh, for example, I see landscapes hashtag. And that ended up being a hub that I um, was a mod for, for like, you know, almost a year. And it was a way where you could really connect with other artists and, you know, not just find people to like meet up and shoot with, but you would see this, you know, all different kinds of photography, macro photography, portraiture. And you'd be like, wow, this is just, I want to follow this person. or I really like this styling and to save this photo. And it was never really about likes or money. It was just about connection and creativity. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, it must have been sometime like 2016 is when I feel like everything changed. And, you know, when you um, start, you know, swapping out creative hubs and communities and art with 
product placement and discount codes, you're going to get, you know, a whole different set of media. And I wouldn't say that the sort of creative community aspect of it died, but it was really pushed to the back. And, you know, much like television programming, you know, you have a wide range of content. Some of it is going to win awards, some of it's terrible. And then you also have ads. And most of those ads are just kind of like, oh gosh, it's another ad. Some of them are just like, oh, this is terrible. And then some of them are like, this ad is brilliant. So (laughs) we have like this whole weird mix of content now on social media and, um, and I think if you're in the business of producing brilliant social media ads and, or if you are sort of in this advocate influencer space where maybe you're going and volunteering for nonprofits or you're lobbying in DC, um, and then you're also taking sponsored projects to help fund that, I fully support that, you know, and I think, and, and that's great. Like a lot of people have figured out a way to do their passion projects and, and get income on social media in a, you know, a tasteful manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like, you know, this whole evolution of the creative industry that way has, you know, I guess the way that I would liken it is to, um, you know, I studied film at UC Santa Cruz, not the best film program in California. I mean, I wish I had access to the, to the kind of equipment that kids at USC had and, you know, also the internships in LA, like if you're a USC <laughs> film student, like, I mean, you know, um, but it's also it all comes down to what you want to get out of it and how focused you're willing to be, I think. And if you want to find awesome people to connect with in the wildlife conservation space um, or, you know, who work for environmental nonprofits, you can still do that on social media. And so I think that is um, the one bright side on all of this where, you know, if you know where to look, you can find amazing people and communities and organizations, but you do have to filter through a lot more noise now than you ever did before. Um, and so I miss the old Instagram, but I'm also grateful for everything that I've been able to find since I created an account in like 2000, I want to say probably 2012 is when I created my Instagram account. Um, but yeah, I think as long as you look at, you know, what you want to get out of it, that's how you can really use it to your advantage, whether that's wanting to, um, you know, find people to network with, or just to get more, more work or just to (laughs) enjoy art. So yeah, it's funny. I think most photographers and cre- well, not creatives, but a lot of photographers, especially in the landscape and nature space, I feel like they find social media to be relatively unapproachable and they're, they just put stuff up there and hope someone finds it, but they don't necessarily use it as a tool to connect with other people. Although I know people do that. I just know that there's a lot of people that I've talked to. They're like, Oh, I don't like social media. I don't like Instagram. I don't like Facebook. And I think, I think it's because they're not necessarily using it the way that a lot of other people have figured out a way to use it. Uh, But that takes time, effort, and a little bit of forethought, you know? Yeah. And I think too, like as far as using social media as a business tool, it is a great business tool because, you know, if you have a decent enough following and you want to use that to, to promote um, books or podcasts or workshops, you can still do it that way, but it should just be one of the tools in your box. Like you need to have a solid website. You need to know how to make a really quality deck that you can pitch a brand or an investor to say, Hey, like, would you like to fund this project? And, you know, you have to, I think there's a lot of people though, on the other side of that, who only get their income off social media, who have really, you know, just nailed it when it comes to the influencer space. And these are, you know, digital creatives who maybe they 
you know, sort of um, style their own shoots and they post photos themselves and stuff. But a lot of them are also really talented photographers. So that's a whole other space too. But then it's like, if you're looking at landscape photographers, that's, yeah, I think the the options are a little bit more limited, which is why it's really just important to have a um, sort of a broad spectrum plan and not just have that narrowed onto, you know, what opportunities exist from social media, because there aren't going to be that many. Right. What would you say about uh, social media's role and creativity? Because what I have seen is that for, and obviously it's, I think it just depends on how you see yourself in this space, but I've seen it limit some people creatively. And I think it, I've seen it open lots of doors for other people. So how would you see it in, from that lens? Um, I think if you're paying attention to what other people are doing, it's going to limit you creatively because you're going to say, oh, well, that person's posted really well, or this person got this branded sponsorship. And, um, and I think if you look at, you share the work that really inspires you. And I know that sounds so cheesy, but I mean, it's true though. (laughs) I think like, and you can't be worried about how things, um, you know, perform on social media or how few people respond to it. Um, and I think that's part of the problem is like, you know, we, we get the sense of validation from attention on social media and, you know, there's even been reports that I've seen where like, you know, they analyze the, the dopamine hit that you get from, you know, engaging and getting attention on social media and they compare it to drugs. So it's like, it's obviously altered our behavior. Um, and I think if it alters your behavior in a way where you're only posting things or you're only posting images on social media because you know that they're going to perform well, that's, you know, you're really discrediting your own work there. Um, so I think you have to shoot things for yourself and just pretend like social media didn't even exist. Like, yeah, you know, it's hard though. I can't help myself whenever I edit a photograph and maybe this is a good segue to another subject, but whenever I'm editing a photograph, I do always in the back of my mind have a little voice saying, how is someone else going to see this? You know, And I think part of that's because I want other, I mean, I think as artists, we want people to like our work. So it's, uh, it's hard to get that out of your head, I think. <laughs> yeah. And it definitely is. Like, I remember when I was, gosh, this was like probably 2012 or something. Um, I remember seeing, and this is before social, I was really on social media at all. There was a photo of Chip Phillips of the beach in Bandon. And it was the, the wizard's hat on the beach, that rock formation. Yeah. And there's this crazy sunset behind it where these clouds are just like all these little cotton ball clouds and they're like pink and gold and yellow. And it's just like, I mean, I would be crying. And I'm sure he was shooting the 16, the, the, the Canon 16 to 35, uh, F two eight that had the crazy sun star. Yeah. I don't know if there's there. I don't think there's a sun star in the image. It was definitely a wide shot though. And it's just like, if you're going to shoot in Bandon, like that's the shot that you want. And I remember seeing that shot. And first of all, I was like, where is this? And then I was like, who is this? Chip Phillips? Like, what is this landscape? And I, and I think like seeing a photo like that, I just, I could not stop staring at it. And it, I wasn't like, su- and I've gone and shot there. Um, but I wasn't like super motivated to go recreate that shot. I was just so spellbound by it that it just made me stop dead in my tracks. And like seeing photos like that, I think you can still have that effect on people, whether it's a landscape or um, a really, um, you know, a photo of people in an area of conflict that is just so powerful. You almost cry when you see it. I think, you know, it is still possible to have that connection with people with your work, you know? So, and 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one of the interesting things about social media is that it is like a, it's a way to get immediate feedback. You know, it's like, do people like this? Do they not like this? I don't tend to use it that way myself anymore just because I've kind of gotten to the point where I edit things and I'll shoot things that I like. And if other people like it, that's cool. But it's still one of those things that it's just, it kind of is influence. It does influence you in terms of how you edit and how you shoot. Yeah, definitely. Especially when it comes to cropping an image, like, you know, if you know that it's going to take up more real estate on a phone screen, like, of course, you're going to crop it as a vertical four by five. And, (laughs) you know, and, but I also think too, that there's some landscapes where I'm just like, Oh, I would never crop this like that. I would never even shoot it like that. And then I'll just share it as, you know, a wider, you know, maybe like a five by seven or something. Um, And I, th- I think people are kind of like, oh, like I can't see it as well on my phone screen. And I'm just like, yeah, but I'm not going to compromise like cropping that. That's a landscape that just cannot be cropped. So, or right. at least cropped like a long shot. So, God, I hate, I hate that you can't edit or post a two by three vertical on Instagram. It drives me nuts. Yeah. No, I think that you and everyone else. <laughs> it drives me absolutely crazy. <laughs> Well, I feel actually it's funny because I had this conversation with one of my friends who's a filmmaker and we were chatting with someone else who's just like, oh, she's like, I only shoot video vertically now. And we were just like, what? Like, why would (laughs) that's a crime? That's a crime. But then at the same time, you're like, well, if you're shooting for people to consume it on their phone, but I mean, then it's also like just flip your phone and shoot it like 16 by 9. Like I know. It's uh I guess I, I I don't like that the consumption vehicle is constraining the creative process. Yes, yes, I completely agree. That I think is what drives me a little crazy. Well, because <laughs> so, I love I love panos. Like I love creating really nice panoramics, but you know they're just not built for social media. Yeah, they really aren't. And that's like, there's a lot of times where I I look through photos and I'm just like, yeah, I would never post this on on social media just because it just, it looks so much better on a computer screen or just on my website or in a blog. And, you know, and even on a a website, it's just kind of like, well, is someone looking at this on their computer or on their phone? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I have to assume these days, like, um, you know, on Facebook, most people are looking at, you know, Facebook on their phone as well, because I used to post like almost exclusively just like wide um, horizontal shots on Facebook. And then I realized, well, yeah, no, this isn't going to make a difference. I mean, yeah, you can flip the screen on Facebook, but um, you know, so there's definitely stuff that I've just been hanging on to forever. And I'm just like, no, this just doesn't translate on a phone screen. So Mm -hmm. that's too bad. Well, I'm curious to hear how your editing style has evolved over time. Cause I know that for a lot of photographers and, you know, you've only really been doing it for what, five years now ish. So yeah, um, it's probably a little bit more raw for you. So <laughs> like how, how has your editing style tra- uh, changed? Oh man. I used to go from what I would call like wild, bold, colorful Elizabeth edits to now I try to <laughs> capture a slightly more natural landscape. Um, you know, I look back in my Lightroom catalog from like 2015, 2016, and I'm just like, I see like completely, like the colors are just like 
electric pink and purple skies that just were not real at all. And, you know, making storm clouds so dark, you're just like, what? That doesn't even look real. Um, but it's, it's fine. Like if you're not looking at your work with a really critical eye, I think you're not improving. Uh, but yeah, so I definitely try to go by what I call the 20% rule, um, when it comes to, um, you know, both color saturation and also like your, your levels of contrast and, and highlights and shadows. Um, and so if you're altering an image more than 20% of how you captured it on your camera or how it kind of looked, because sometimes things translate a little bit differently on a camera because like, you know, certain colors don't, don't pop as much, but, but I mean, this is again, though, if you're a digital artist, you don't have to follow that rule at all. But like for me is trying to pass off an image as a moment that really happened I try to kind of keep it under more control now than I did um, early on. Um, and like I said, like with, with color, um, which, you know, with the, the HSL sliders in Lightroom, for example, like if you're going to shoot fall colors and, you know, you crank up your, your orange and your red to like, you know, the highest number. I mean, of course, like you can tell. And like, and I think that's one of those things where when I see those edits where, you know, you can tell that like every yellow and green has been just like cranked up to as red and orange as it goes. And you're just like, but this isn't, this doesn't even look good because you can see that there's like a person in the frame, like their skin's red and you're like, okay, hello. Like we can tell, or, you know, the same with like sand on a beach or like the sand isn't like that color. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I think like I'm, I'm kind of turned off by like edits like that, but I think there's also plenty of digital artists out there who do a really good job, both when they're incorporating Photoshop and just, you know, altering, um, um colors and, and, and levels. Um, so I think uh, it's all personal style, but um, I try not to go too wild with the edits anymore. Um, I definitely, um, I think my photography definitely does come off a little staged sometimes. Um, and sometimes it is as far as like when I have like a person posing in a landscape. I mean, that's not, that's not always them. They're not walking through there. I mean, usually they're standing or looking out or they're like a tiny human in a landscape kind of kind of composition. And that, that's fine. Like, I don't really feel as though I excel at shooting people. Um, so I definitely try to stick with what I'm good at. And, you know, I, I dabble with like detail shots now more than I did before. Um, uh, I had for the longest time, my um, 1635 and 2470. And then I had, I don't even remember what kind of Canon lens it was, but it was, uh, I want to say it was like, a went up to like 300. Okay. And then, then I finally, I don't even remember what it was. I sold it like forever ago. And then I finally got the, uh, 7,200 2.8. And I was just like, I don't know, this lens is kind of heavy. It's kind of big. And I use that, uh, more than any of my lenses now. <laughs> so it's still got such a good lens. Like, um, and so I think also too, like, I never would have thought that I'd be so much of a details person. And I like rarely use my 1635 now. So, you know, that's, I've definitely changed a bit with, with my style there and, um, but like, you know, I think mostly my edits are what has, um, improved a bit. And I also think too, um, you know, I've gone storm chasing now for two seasons with my friend Kelly delay and he, um, he's just a brilliant weather photographer, but you know, in seeing his photos and then going out and shooting these scenes with him and we, we shoot these things completely differently. Like he's a pano guy. Um, he also does like really minimal edits to his work and, it's kind of inspired me to tone it down a little bit and um, to really kind of adopt a more natural approach with my edits. So, I'm curious, why is presenting the landscape as if it was how you remembered it important to you? 
I mean, I've done my fair, fair share of photoshopping things in and creating like digital art and it's fun. But I also think to really have that sense of wow, both for me, whenever I look back at my own work and for others to show them what nature is capable of, I really um, want to try to preserve reality as much as I can. Um, that's kind of why I do it. Um, just like capturing fleeting moments and these magical moments just to know that you were able to just grab it for a second. Um, and I think that to me is more authentic storytelling than, you know, crafting an image in Photoshop. And again, like I used to dabble a lot more with Photoshop whenever um, I was starting out, but I try not to do it as much anymore. I think, you know, yeah, I reserve Photoshop for if there's like, I do have a pretty big scratch on my 7200. It's my most, most used lens. Sometimes it shows up. So I got to Photoshop that out. Um, but then there's like been a couple other times where like, if there's a composition where the mountains on both edges of the frame are like slightly off and I'm like, or there's like some piece of rock where I'm just like, I can't crop this in anymore on that side. And there's this like ugly little, like a, almost like a booger of rock in the corner. Sure. And I'm just like, I just want to clean the booger out. And then you, you know, take it in Photoshop and like, no one will know that you cleaned out like a tiny little section of rock that was just ruining your whole frame or like some little bare patch of vegetation in a grassy field, like stuff like that. Like, I mean, I definitely still clean up my images sometimes, but then sometimes I also leave it. So. All right. Well, I think there's a fundamental difference between cleaning up a frame that represents an experience versus manufacturing an experience that didn't actually happen. Yeah, definitely. And trying to pass it off is that. And I think um, one of my favorite wildlife photographers is Andy Parkinson and he mixes this sort of like the, you see like those dreamy landscape shots with like long exposures and like the really satiny water and just like magic lighting. Like he incorporates all those dreamy landscape elements into his wildlife photography. And a couple of years ago when I first started following him on Instagram, I had just seen one of his photos on um, um, Nat Geo and it was a, a baby swan with the mom. And there's a piece of grass on like all over this like beautiful white fuzzy swan scene. Cause it was a really close up shot of the swan, the mama swan and the baby swan snuggling. And I remember like the first sentence of his caption on, on social media was the most infuriating piece of grass ever. And, this was, <laughs> <laughs> and it was this whole big debate about, he's like, I really thought for a while, like maybe I want to Photoshop the grass out because it makes the image look so much cleaner. He's like, but then I also felt like it was a really important part of the story because he had spent weeks, if not months, photographing these birds and sort of getting just slowly, day by day, like creeping close enough to them that he could kind of, they were a little bit more habituated to him. And of course, like in a totally respectful way. Um, and he said, you know, I really felt like that piece of grass showed the habitat that they lived in because they were just like nested in these little clusters of grass. And he's like, I had to sit in that grass for weeks to get this shot. And I'm kind of paraphrasing some of this, but um, but I felt like, wow, like that actually really, that does tell a story and the image is still just as beautiful to me with the grass in it. And like, would it have been perhaps more, you know, visually pleasing to not have the grass in it? Yeah. But it was still a wonderful image that told a story. So, right. and the comments on that, on that post thread were really interesting to read about this. It was this great discussion about, um, you know, photography versus digital art. So interesting. Yeah, it's, it's something I unfortunately spend way too much time thinking about myself. I went there hardcore early on in my photography career. I mean, I was compositing Milky Ways into scenes that didn't exist and getting lots of praise for my photos. And 
but then like I'd look at the photo and I'd be like, it looks cool, but like the fact that I didn't actually experience that doesn't make it feel right to me. And so I just I just don't do that stuff anymore. But you know, it's a personal choice, I guess. Yeah, and I, there's I, I think I kind of stopped doing this in 2017, where I would yeah I'd completely stitch stuff together, like whether it was skies or I Photoshop certain suns and moons in certain photos or uh there's one shot that I took of Mount Fuji in the fall with some leaves and like yeah I completely stacked that so like and the leaves were totally out of focus because I was shooting like I can't remember if it was sunrise or sunset it must have been sunrise and you know and I, I shot it both ways where you know it's just you know single shot with like the out of focus leaves but I was just like but I want these beautiful maple leaves to be in focus too so you know, and someone actually called me out for that on, on Instagram. And I was just like, so then I was like, do we need to disclose whether our photography is, you know, sort of more of a digital interpretation or whether it's just like a really authentic moment. And I feel like for landscape photography, I don't feel like you really need to do that, but, um, you know, obviously for, for other things you would. Um, so. Yeah. I think it just depends on, I don't know. I personally don't, I like to avoid uncomfortable moments where people call you out and you're like, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was kind of like, well, whatever. I mean, I don't really care. It's still a pretty photo and it looks real enough to me. So unless someone thinks I'm like bad at like altering my images, then I'm like, okay, like, please tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I think it's also kind of more too like I'm a little bit lazier now where I'm just like I would rather spend like a couple minutes editing a photo that is just has beautiful light. Um, then like trying to create something from a bunch of different images that I have laying around that I'm not like really happy with. And I think these days, whenever I shoot something, um, you know, capture some really lovely golden light or just a quick moment with wildlife. And I'm just like, as soon as I've shot it, I'm usually like, Oh, this is going to, I'm so excited to look at this in the computer later because it's an accurate representation to me of what I saw and what moved me to Mm -hmm, either mm -hmm. if it's an animal click 300 frames of it. Or if I'm driving by somewhere and I'm just like, I'm going to, I got to pull off the road to shoot this because it's so good. You know, like I want to share that level of excitement with anyone who's looking at my photos. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if, if it's as simple as um, like what really draws somebody to enjoy photography. Is it the fact that it's like you're memorializing a moment in time that you really found moving or is it, you really want to create a piece of art that moves other people. I, I don't know. Like me personally, I like the former more than the latter, but yeah, I think I kind of go between both of those pools and I, um, you know, you can have your foot in both of them same time, I think too. So, um, but I think also like from having, um, sort of, it's easier to pick up on stuff now when it's like not as authentic when it comes to like staging, staging shots, whether it's like, you know, a stage tent shot for the gram, like that kind of thing. But also like, you know, but then it's also, you look at portraiture and like, there's some shots where like someone has like really put a lot of thought into the location that they want to shoot, what the model's going to wear. And then there's other shots that I've seen that someone's captured of a friend on a trail run. And it's just like, you know, there's sweat dripping down their face, but they're like perfectly backlit and it's more like documentary style. And that, that to me is almost like, I don't know, I kind of, I've, I've been kind of drifting more in that direction over the years. Um, 
but you know, of course I love the, the dreamy shots of like, you know, a woman in a dress on sand dunes that are, you know, blowing at golden hour. Of course, like, yeah, if you put a lot of thought into shooting that exact shot before it's happened, like that's creative as well. So it is, I just, it never moves me. Cause I, all I can the as I guess, as a photographer, as a, all I can see is all of the behind the scenes staging that occurred to make it happen. I don't see the, the moment like it's not a real moment it's a manufactured moment and I don't know why that's important to me I can't put my finger on it but it always those kinds of shots never do anything for me yeah and I think like they used to for me and they don't as much anymore and I think also another thing that um kind of plays into that is you know have I how many times have I seen that shot done right um and At I think point, it's not creative anymore. <laughs> well, exactly. And I think like there's the whole, you know, comp stomping term, which I always makes me laugh. I feel like you're probably laughing right now. Um, but I think, <laughs> like, um, and this is for both those kinds of like dreamy, like sort of Instagrammy portraits. And also with landscape photography, where like this existed in the landscape photography world before social media was ever a thing where like, one fine art landscape photographer would go shoot something. And then you'd have like, maybe once, once a couple of people saw that, be like, I want to go shoot that exact spot and find where that exact cluster of rocks is and where that exact log is because it's so perfectly framed. Um, so oh, I yeah. feel like, and I've been nope. guilty of that. Nope. My gosh, like, of, of course I'll admit that. Like, you know, when I was starting out, like I was really kind of, you know, emulating the style of people who I admired. So of course I'm going to go like shoot Valley View in Yosemite and look for the most appealing cluster of rocks. And like, you know what, if it's the same cluster of rocks that someone else has already shot, um, I'm not going to feel too guilty about that. And that's sort of, that's actually where this happened the first time. And um, I felt pretty bad about it. And this is like 2015, 2016. There's one guy set up on a tripod at sunrise shooting that spot and then there is a girl and then there is myself and the girl had gone over to kind of like shoot near him. I mean, she was really like probably about like six feet away from him. Um, they were shooting the same cluster of rocks. And I kind of was like, well, if both of you guys are over here and you guys don't know each other. And like, I'm going to hop over here too. Cause it's like, I looked at that as sort of like a Mesa arch situation where like y'all are going to get the same shot. There's like 20 of you lined up shoulder to shoulder. Like not anyone, like unless you go to like the very other edge of Mesa arch, like, you're not going to get like, you know, something that different. Um, but I guess what I should have been more respectful of there is the fact that I really was shooting over this guy's shoulder. And he said something to both of us. And he was just like, do you mind giving me some space? And we were kind of like, well, but the sun's rising right now. And like, there's like, this is the best cluster of rocks here. And, you know, so I look at it this way, we're like tunnel view by contrast is like, I mean, it's the same as Mace Arch. Like everyone lines up, gets the same shot. But then you look at a spot like Valley View and like, you can walk along that spot for like, mm -hmm. and you've shot there, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I taught it out of Yosemite, uh, in February. Okay. Um, and it's like, especially in the winter when those rocks are covered in snow and they're like little squishy pillows, like right. squish, squishy snow pillows. And you have, you know, all the mountains in the background and you get that early morning light on them. Like that's a really wonderful photo to take. And, and it's a, I mean, I've shot it probably four different times and I would, I would shoot it again. I'm not you know, really highly prioritizing shooting it again. But, um, you know, you can walk along that area and find your own unique compositions. But there's that one sort of concentrated space where if you took 10 photographers, blindfolded them, and set them out one at a time to go find the best cluster of rocks there, like three or four of them are going to pick the exact same spot. So it's not a matter of I was copying him as much as I felt like this was like the best spot to shoot, but I should have been more respectful 
of his space. And that's one of those things where you either get there first or you just um, hope that people <laughs> will kind of stay out of your space or really go off the grid and find the spots that no one else is shooting. So yeah, I feel it's, like it's, it's hard. A, yeah. Um, it's funny because I do uh, probably the last few years now I've, I've done like week long photography trips with my buddy Kane and he's just so much better at finding compositions naturally than I am. And, uh, and, but he, and he's faster at it. Like I can usually find them. It just takes me longer. And it's so funny cause we'll hike out to a place together and it's usually somewhere that neither of us have ever been before. And we've never seen any other photos from that place. So when we get there, it's like, it's like this race to find something that we like a lot. Right. And inevitably like nine times out of 10, we'll be looking around together, looking around, looking around and he'll find something. And I'll be like, Oh, he found something cool. And then I'll keep looking, keep looking. And I'll go look to see what he's got. And I'm like, dude, you found the best spot. I hate you so much. And, you know, inevitably I'll be like, can I shoot this spot too? It's cause honestly you found the best spot. <laughs> like I hate you. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I, I try to think of that. Like whenever I think back of like how irritated that guy looked, it wasn't so much because he's like, you're copying me. It's just like, you are in my space right, right. now. And I remember like a year or two later and I, I haven't like, maybe there are a couple of times like in that sort of like 2015, 2016 timeframe where I was still kind of doing that a little bit, but I tried to be really mindful of it. And then when it happened to me when someone was shooting over my shoulder, that's when I finally realized like, that's how annoying this is. I would never want to annoy someone like this. Um, and I was shooting with this, um, this gal who, um, I had hung out with her like once or twice before and super nice girl. And she, she wasn't a photographer really. I mean, she had like a DSLR, but she wasn't like a professional photographer. And she was like literally following me around shooting. And I was just like, can you give me some space? And I was just like, wow, that guy must've been so pissed a couple of years ago. Um, but I think I've also seen it as it's happened with photographers too. I was on this press trip a while back. Um, and there were six of us and this one guy found this spot that was like, I mean, is he the only person in the world who's probably ever taken the shot? No, but like he literally kind of like, you would have had to follow him, like walk right behind him to find it. And like, I think he, he was, he's a super talented photographer and some of the other, two of the other photographers in our group kind of like found where he was, like, what's he shooting? And then they saw it and then they copied the shot. And it was, it was an original enough shot that he had every right to be pissed about it. And they like copied it, like just full on, like a hundred percent copy. Like if I saw both of those photos, I'd be like, I can't really tell a difference. Like they framed mm -hmm. it the same and everything. And he was, he was pissed. And I was just like, yeah. And like, I guess I kind of understand it now why people get so protective of like a space that they've either kind of had to work to, to, to find, or they put in the research and like, you kind of get into some of that discussion with mm -hmm. geotags on social media. Um, and I think, but that's also a really complicated topic because then you also get into the whole gatekeeping argument which like most landscape photographers are like that's not what it's about and then you have outdoor advocates who are like yes it is and then it's like and they're just like whoa like i think you guys need to find some common ground here but i think as far as just the whole um idea that you know just because you've shot a spot and you know shared it on social media maybe too like you you own it and you don't but mm. I think, you know, if someone is kind of like mooching off your work, like then you can get a little bit, you know, you're allowed to say something about it, I think. So. Absolutely. Well, damn, you just dropped a bomb there because I, 
Oh, the gatekeeping thing drives me crazy because it's never about owning a place or a spot. It's about the fact that the general public on Instagram does not is not equipped with education, experience, and knowledge of a place to know how to actually treat it in a way that isn't going to prevent it from getting jacked up. Yep. And for me. Yeah, no. And I, I, for the most part, agree with that. And I think too, like, and then of course you see the argument where people are like, well, then don't post the photo at all. And it's like, well, I actually, I know a couple of people who have taken photos of a place where like, when, as soon as I saw their photos, I was like, Ooh, that, I'm going to add that to my bucket list. It looks amazing. And then I noticed like a couple months later, they'd taken the photos down and I'm friends with them. And I was just like, Hey, like, do you mind if I ask, like, why did you take those photos down? And I knew where they shot it. Um, mm-hmm. um, and they are just like, you know, we really felt like it was a special spot that we didn't want to really broadcast. And, you know, it was kind of a tough decision to take it down because we love the photos too, but we ultimately were like, we don't want this getting blown up in a way where, people start going out there and leaving trash or start, you know, trampling all over areas that are not, you know, suitable for foot traffic. And mm-hmm. um, so there's like that super extreme end of it. But then I also feel like, you know, these days, whenever I am researching um, places that I want to go, I'm not looking on social media at all. Me neither. Um, I'm looking on a map and uh, I'm like really zooming in on a map. <laughs> and sometimes I'm like, you know, maybe if I'm backpacking and I have a map of a place and I'm like bored, I don't have phone service and it's like raining out. I'm like, I'll just like look at a map and be like, where's this? Lake? Like, what's the elevation here? Like what other peaks are nearby? Like, you know, just so I can kind of get an idea. Um, and you, know, you can do that same thing online, obviously too. But I remember I did that in Colorado a couple of years ago. I was just like, huh, during a rainstorm at like 4 PM, didn't have anything else to do. Um, but you know, and there's certainly some Googling involved where like, if you get into a certain national forest that, you know, you're like, Oh, like I don't, this isn't, you know, Bridger Teton. <laughs> like it's, you know, there's, it's kind of more off the grid and you're like, Oh, like, you know, if it's like, you know, Bighorn National Forest in Wyoming, for example, and you're like trying to find like trail networks and, you know, like you're not going to find hikes on all trails there. There's maybe like two listed and, you know, you're also like th- th- those spots aren't on Instagram. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and then, then you get into it where you're like, okay, you Google like backpacking routes, Bighorn National Forest, and then you find the Forest Service website with all these different trailheads for backpacking. And there's like, there's no sort of like perfectly packaged, you know, blog post that's like, okay, this is this hike and it's 30 miles with 2,500 feet of elevation gain. Here's where we camped the first night. <laughs> like, it's not, there's nothing like that exists. Like, you literally have to click each and every one of these like, you know, trailhead, um, reports to see like, where does this trail go? How long is it? And, you know, and then maybe you can put together a route from there. And like, so I think if you really want to put in the time to put together a trip like that, and then someone's going to give you a hard time about like, where is this Wyoming? That's where it is. And right. You know, I think, if- honestly, I mean, that's what it's about, right? Like I feel it, it, for me, it comes down to it. It's very simple. If someone is willing to put in the research to figure out where a place is and do a little bit of research, they're probably the type of person that's more likely to actually care about that place too. Yeah. And like, that's just as an example, like I posted a photo of um, Keegan Falls in Japan a while ago and I just put the geotag as Japan. And like, literally, if you Google waterfalls in Japan, (laughs) Keegan Falls is like the first thing that shows up. And then there's people who are like, where is this? Where is this? Where is this? And I'm like, okay, so this completely... This has nothing to do with gatekeeping. This just has to do with laziness where like you could literally just Google that exact search term. And, you know, so that I guess sort of this whole sense of entitlement on social media is kind of what bothers me when it comes to that. Um, 
I mean, I certainly see a point though in the gatekeeping argument. Like, I don't want to totally discredit that because, you know, if someone's sharing photos of an area, not even really suggesting where it is, or, you know, they're like rubbing it in your face where they're like, oh, I'm not going to tell you where this is. Like, that's like, you know, I can understand why people might be, you know, getting their panties in a bunch about that, but it's still like, I think it's important to think of how something could get in the wrong hands and, you know, just to make sure that you're, you know, encouraging people to visit these places responsibly and, you know, be mindful of their impact. And, you know, that's the most you can do. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) It's funny. I actually really wanted to spend a lot of time talking to you about your uh, film that you uh, created called In the Shadows of Lions, which is all about lions in Africa and the effect of lion cub petting and wildlife tourism and all those kinds of things. And I, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your project and, you know, what kind of drew you to even do a project like that? Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, I, I wouldn't consider myself to be a wildlife photographer, but I love animals. I always have. And I did an assignment in late 2017 in Tanzania and, and I'd been to Africa before I'd actually volunteered in Africa before, but I really, after going on this trip and learning about, um, a desnaring program in Serengeti national park, I began to realize, I was like, wow, this is, it's kind of amazing how like, if you use tourism and social media in the right way, you can actually help conservation efforts. And on the same token, you can really, social media can hurt conservation efforts. This was shocking to me that if you geotag a photo of a rhino, you could actually be assisting poachers. Um, So I was like, I really would love to dig more into this topic. And so um, after I worked on that project with, um, Four Seasons, Serengeti, and Matador Network. I actually went back to Matador Network and I said, would you guys be interested in working on a a wildlife tourism conservation kind of project with me? And um, what ended up as the the final film was not at all what I pitched, which I think is kind of the case with many documentaries. Um, (laughs) um, Because, I mean, I was in Africa. I was in South Africa and Namibia for for a month. And um, I was interviewing a couple of... um, different organizations and really like it was, it was quite a big learning experience for me. But um, in any case, they, they agreed to back this film. They were incredibly supportive and let me, um, you know, take on pretty much like full creative control for this. And then of course, giving me great guidance, um, really um, appreciate their help with all of that. And um, I thought I wanted to talk about cub petting specifically um, because it's, it's such a big problem in South Africa. It's a problem in the United States. It's a problem in Thailand. It's a problem all over the world. Um, and this is, you know, with lions in South Africa. And then of course you have lions and tigers in the U S for used for cub petting. And then in, in Southeast Asia, it's usually tigers. Um, well, there's some lions there as well that are used at these petting zoos. Um, and so I, I just wanted to really put a spotlight on that and say, look, like, here's the best way if if you want to have these experiences with wildlife and travel and, you know, you claim to be doing it to support conservation efforts, like here's what you need to know. And especially in the age of social media, where it's not just professional photographers who want to go take safari photos, it's people who are traveling to South Africa who are maybe on safari in this one area, but they're passing through Johannesburg or, you know, they're in this area, that area. And they're like, Oh, I want to go. Like, I would love to go take a selfie snuggling a lion cub. And if they think they're doing it to benefit a conservation organization and they're being misled, like I would 
love to try to help put a stop to that. So that was kind of the, the, um, you know, inspiration for wanting to make this film. And then as I had more conversations, I realized it was supposed to be like a five to eight minute piece by the way, it ended up being 20 minutes, um, which I, I also feel like too, like that maybe kind of hurt me a little bit because people just wanted to tune out. They wanted something like, you know, really just juicy and clickbaity and that, you know, getting someone to watch anything for 20 minutes these days is a challenge. But I also felt like there were a lot of, um, you know, statements made by people that I interviewed who are truly experts in their fields mm-hmm. um, that I wanted to share with regard to, you know, the role of game rangers in Africa and everything that they risk, both when they're in the bush and then when they're back in their communities. And like, mm-hmm. you know, for example, like the part where the um, uh, Ruben de Kock was working at the, um, the wildlife college, he now works for WWF. Um, but he was saying, you know, yeah, we've had people steal field rangers uniforms and specifically their boots so they can get into these game reserves and national parks and poach animals. And yeah. that I was just, I was that shocking. Was really, to me. That was a really, um, I, I, I guess, uh, eye opening part of the film for me too. Just, you know, obviously a lot of that's driven by economics and poverty and, you know, the state of the economy in some of those countries and what people are driven to do when they're desperate to make ends meet. But man, just, it's, I think those are the kind of really interesting stories that are often untold or unknown. Yeah. And I, I well, as soon as he started telling me all these things and then talking about, um, you know, the geotags with rhinos and then at one of the private game reserves in Namibia, there was actually signage that said, please do not post photos of rhinos on social media here. And I had him explain that where I was just like, but you know, what if it's just, you know, like a nondescript, like you can't like, obviously if you're taking a photo of a rhino somewhere where there's a very noticeable, you know, mountain or like fencing or a certain tree. And then, you know, it's a small game reserve and say one of the guides or game rangers in that reserve or park, you know, tips off a poacher and he's like, oh yeah, like they're in this area. And then, you know, he can back it up with a photo of that area. Like, of course, like that's going to, you know, that's going to assist them. And they're like, you, you have to understand that poachers are using social media as much as we are. In mm-hmm. fact, they might even be using it more than us. And, and so even if you don't think it's, it would, you know, lead these animals to be, you know, killed for their horns or for their bones in the case, cases of uh, lions that are being slaughtered over, over there. Um, you know, it's, so it's good to understand that like, you know, the whole, you know, explanation behind that where it's just like, yeah, like even if it's a nondescript shot, it would still indicate like, oh, maybe they've recently had rhinos transported to this game reserve and this poacher didn't know that there were rhinos in this game reserve. And there, you know, um, there's also many game reserves now where they're seen as a liability. Like they don't even want to have rhinos in their game reserve because they have to spend so much money in protecting them. It's just not worth it for them, which is, which is sad because not only are these animals losing habitat, but, you know, we're limiting the number of safe places that we can keep them because people are so scared of, of having, you know, uh, conflicts with armed poachers. So, yeah one one of the things I wanted to ask you about because I I am not a wildlife photographer per se, although I enjoy it. My my mom is actually a hardcore birder, and that's a whole other culture. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm curious, you know, the role that uh, photography and wildlife tourism has in terms of. Uh, driving some of these economies, you know, around like captive animals and 
And I, I just wonder how much, like how much are we actually contributing to the problem as photographers and tourists in terms of the treatment of animals and the, them being in captivity and things of that nature? That's a really excellent question. And it's going to vary depending on where you are. Like, for example, in Africa, you can participate at some game reserves in drone safaris. And, um, you know, I've seen this done before with film crews where I felt like it was done in a really respectful manner. And there's a ranger present who understands how drones work and can actually fly them themselves. Um, And so like, if it's that sort of situation, I'm like, normally I'd be kind of like wildlife should not be droned ever. But, um, you know, if you're doing it for research purposes, if you're doing it for documentary, if it's sort of, even as a a tourist, it's something that is offered to you as an option, but it's done respectfully. And you know that the animal isn't being bothered. I feel like, I mean, I'm really reluctant to say this, but I, I feel like that is going to be a way to generate income and, you know, to leave people with an experience that they're going to want to share with their friends. And it's like, you know, these drone safaris, like for example, they're, you're not allowed to have them. Like you have to have a special permit for it. If you go to one of these game reserves and like sign up for it in advance and it's really expensive. But I mean, if you have enough money and you want to do it, it can be done. Um, and, and again, like the way that I've seen this done, it's from a distance, it's only certain kinds of animals. And, you know, it's with, again, with a ranger or a guide who has a certain level of certification. Right. So, but then you have game reserves where they'll just let you buzz any sort of animal with a drone. And that's, you know, and for, you know, certain amount of money, they just, you know, they feel like it's okay. And so that's, that's an issue in in Africa. But then you have an issue in the US where, you know, you have cub petting. And then you have the whole, you know, oh, like, but it's a but it's a sanctuary. Well, if they're allowing contact with animals, it's not a sanctuary, they're just marketing themselves that way. Or they have a nonprofit that they work with that is, you know, has the word conservation in it. But, you know, they have no, you know, accreditation from, uh, you know, any legitimate sanctuary association like GFAS or as far as like zoos, like there's, you know, the difference between accreditation between, um, you know, AZA and ZAA and like all these things you're just like, oh, well, you know, I don't know anything about this. So and, and that's that's the problem. There's so much misinformation and, you know, the folks that want to keep these industries afloat are doing everything they can to confuse tourists and trick them into thinking that they are actually helping these animals. I can just picture you watching Tiger King on Netflix and just screaming at the television. <laughs> That's precisely what happened. Because <laughs> uh, for me, it was more educational, that that piece of it, because I have just never, I've never been to any of those kinds of places before. And that was a... Um, that was a really interesting part of that show, I guess. I don't know if you know if you want to call it a documentary, but I mean, because it was highly entertaining as well. But yeah. uh, um, not only just from a socioeconomic and psychological and ethics, like it had it all, but learning about the industry of animal captivity and, and why they breed them and the purpose of them having them as a petting zoo and that was really disgusting for me. Uh, well, I mean, I'm a vegetarian, so I'm a animal rights person in general, but that was, you know, it didn't surprise me, but, um, hopefully it woke a few people up a little bit. Well, I definitely, um, (laughs) I had a lot of problems with that film because you're not film, sorry, serious. Um, when you first tune in, you know, I think his, is it Eric is the producer's name? 
It begins with an E. I think it's it's Eric. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, and he's like, oh, I saw a snow leopard in a van, and I wanted to know what happens to these cats. And I'm just like, yeah, but your whole series is just this sort of, like, <laughs> high school drama right. with, like, a couple different characters who are, yes, wildly entertaining. But, you know, he never really answered the question, what happens to these cats? And then at the very end, there's, like, a couple of, line of lines of text where, you know, it's like, oh, like, this and this. And they, they mention the Big Cat Public Safety Act, but they don't offer any sort of you know differentiation between some of the sanctuaries that they they portray there like big cat rescue for example is an accredited sanctuary and that's you know that of course is um uh carol and howard baskin's rescue and they've done a ton of work whether it's lobbying to actually rescuing and rehabilitating uh wild cats they they uh, rehabilitate uh bobcats in um that are native there and um, but they also take in a lot of animals that have been, you know, turned over by authorities that have been abused and whatnot. And then, of course, you know, you have, you know, oh. Joe Exotic's venue and Myrtle Beach Safari. And these places purely exist so people can come in and pet these animals. Right. And you don't and it was just like, oh, all these crazy big cat owners. And they don't separate the fact that, like, Carol is actually doing the work. And like, yeah, of course, like there's all these scandals, like with. I was going to say, it didn't help help that they painted her as a murderer. <laughs> I know. And it's just like, you know, I, I just have to look at like how she, how much she has done and her husband, how much they've done um, when it comes to pushing for policy change and working with legitimate nonprofits and the work that they've done to educate people. And I think there's so much value in what, what they've done. And it was just completely destroyed because of like the scandal and the drama, which, you know, of course is great for ratings, but like, Right. If you are setting out to make an educational piece and you're going to proclaim in the first like couple of minutes, what happens to these cats? And you don't answer that question. You as a producer have failed. And I really, it was disappointing to see where that, um, that series went. And I, I think though it did raise some awareness. So the people who want to educate themselves now have been able to look into like, you know, Carol Baskin, they, they type in big cat rescue and they realize, Oh, like this rescue is actually work with the humane society. So like surely the humane and iPhone, like, you know, surely these organizations that are like, you know, widely recognized as being, you know, really helping animals, surely they wouldn't work with someone who's, you know, in this just for the money and fame and stuff. And, and that's right. But then, you know, you look at someone like, um, you know, Doc Antle and he's not, a doctor, by the way, um, <laughs> at least not in the U.S. Um, yeah, he's, I think a, he claimed- he's a doctor of basically trapping young, helpless women into becoming his love slaves and getting boob jobs, apparently. But yeah, right. Like <laughs> I, I was just like that. I'm sorry. Like that whole that that whole part of it was just wild to me. But hundred um, oh, percent. As a <laughs> as a trained therapist, I got a lot of entertainment out of that part of the show. Just like. I found all of the intricacies of, you know, the power between these big cat people and really they're just compensating for this lack of ego. I mean, it was, for me, it was all just, it was rich with just human experience and and all the dynamics that you see every day, but I digress, I suppose. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And and that's the thing. Like I look at someone like Joe exotic and like, he comes off as really likable. So I understand. But then, then, you know, and you want to be rooting for him and you also want to see the good in him. um, Because I feel like deep down, whenever he started doing this, I think he did care about animals. He was interested in them. 
And, yeah. and it's really sad to see how money changed all money and change and fame changed all of that for him. Whereas mm-hmm. Carol has just been trying to get people to have more respect for big cats for the last couple of decades. And, you know, then people are going to lump her in with someone like, you know, Joe or Doc Antle. And you look at Myrtle Beach Safari and they have a, um, a conservation quote, I put this in quotes, conservation nonprofit called the Rare Species Fund. And, you know, you see if you're a tourist and you're in Myrtle Beach and you see an amazing place where you can go see tigers and it's it's marketed as a sanctuary and they work with the Rare Species Fund, which is a conservation nonprofit. You're like, oh, this checks every box like, you know, and then you go there and you realize, well, wait, where are all these baby tigers coming from? You know, like they're not just, you know, they're not just showing up every once in a while because they've been orphaned because I mean, they're not, this isn't their natural habitat. So they're obviously being bred. And then you get into, you know, the fact that this is on the Myrtle Beach Safari website, or at least it was last week, where um, if you want to have a private swim with the tigers, it's $5,000. But you can also do a selfie photo op with them for, I want to say it starts like a hundred bucks. So there's, you have this whole price range. And so not only is this accessible to all kinds of people, um, you know, you can bring your kids and just, you know, spend a couple hundred bucks and get some really cute photos you can post on Facebook, or you can just have like some knockout Instagram content by swimming with some baby tigers. Like, you know, everything is on the menu. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that we are encouraging this type of interaction um, you know, whether it's with people who live in the U S or who coming in to visit, Um, we are really helping promote that all over the world, especially when you factor in social media and we are saying it's okay to do this. And you look at what's happening in South Africa where they have, you know, establishments over there where you can pet lion cubs as well. And then these cubs are sold to canned hunt farms. Um, or what's become increasingly common is they are farmed for their bones Um, you know, the tiger bone trade is huge in Asia, but there's so much demand for it now. They are actually, um, substituting lion bones for for this. And, um, up until 2018, it was legal in South Africa for, um, 800, up to 800, um, um, lions that were bred in captivity there for their skeletons to be exported from South Africa. Um, and it was the same number in, in 2017. In 2018, they actually tried to raise that cap to 1,500. And there was um, so much public outcry that they reduced that number to 800. And then in late 2018, there was a lawsuit filed by um, uh, a conservation organization in South Africa that actually put a temporary hold on that annual quota, which means the, the skeletons weren't allowed to legally be traded. But if they've, if it's been legal for them to be traded up until 2018, like you have to assume that like, you know, not only is the black market for it huge, but it's going to be, it's going to be further fueling the black market because, you know, if 800 a year are going out legally, like how many are going out illegally? And if, and if they're legal, like, it's not like, it's just, it's regulated. It's not like it's, you know, banned in any way. Like, of course, there are going to be so many that are going to be shipped out of that country. And so if we continue to allow this in the U S we are basically saying we support this. I mean, that's, that's just the way it is. And it, it um, hurts our efforts whenever, you know, U.S. organizations and, and politicians are trying to appeal to other countries to, um, you know, improve their policies. 
for the wildlife trade and they point their fingers back at us and they say, but you have thousands of captive bred cats in the US and you let people cuddle them. And there's people like Joe Exotic who are shooting them in the head. So yeah, it's know. unfortunate. I mean, I find myself on a fairly regular basis asking myself, you know, when I find out about a practice that's just like, God, that's disgusting. That's weird. That's gross. Why are people doing that? And I'll, like 99% of the time, it's like, all right, money, money. Yeah. I, I forgot. That's a thing that people really, really need and want. And uh, unfortunately, until we can figure out a way as a species, as a planet to equalize that, it's never going to stop. Well, I will say this, like as much as I, um, it is discouraging to see, um, you know, when, for example, in 2018, when they tried to raise the, the, the cap on the, the lion skeleton export in South Africa, you're like, really, you're actually raising this right now? Like, how many films have been made about like, what happens to these lions, like blood lions, is an excellent piece about the canned hunting. And this was done a couple of years ago before the lion bone trade became so huge. And that was focused more on canned hunting. But it's like, you know, the same thing has been going on for years. People have been speaking out about it. But I think, you know, someone asked me a while ago, what is the best way to really help conservation efforts? And I, the first thing that came to my mind was start on a local level. Because if you can start in your backyard, if you can start in your city, if you can start in your state, your home country, you can influence policy all over the world. Absolutely. And, um, you know, for us in the U.S., that's one of the reasons why I've spoken out so much about the Big Cat Public Safety Act. It's something Carol Baskin mentioned a couple times in Tiger King, I think, and they probably cut all of it out. I, but I do think she, if it wasn't her mentioning it, someone had said, no, oh, I remember they just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone had at least made the connection that she's lobbied in D.C. Um but, you know, she's been pushing for this for years. So many of the, you know, conservation organizations um, like, you know, IFA and the Humane Society, they have been as well. And all the conservation organizations are on the same page here about this bill. But, you know, different versions of it have kind of been tossed around for the last couple of years and we can't get it passed. And it's just, you know, what it comes down to is saying, OK, do we need these you know, venues that offer cub petting and the private ownership is actually just as big of a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, I don't know how familiar you are with this, but so there's no federal regulation. For, yeah, it's frightening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are 50 different laws in 50 different states. So um, there are some states that don't have any laws at all. There's some that say, yeah, you can't have, uh, you can't own a pet tiger, but if you have a USDA license and you do X, Y, Z, which is usually, you know, a couple of easy things like signing a form and, um, you know, establishing yourself as, you know, having a re like a legitimate reason to have a rescue here. Right. Then you can have tigers and, you know, it's it. the There's form. There- yeah, I was going to say, there's probably not much that could, if someone really wanted to raise a whole bunch of wild tigers and then just release them upon a city, they could probably pull it off. Yeah, I mean, we saw that happen. And I want to say this was in Ohio a couple of years ago. Gosh, I should really know this. Well, I think but... they showed it on Tiger King. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they did. They and... kill them all. With like, yeah. The police had to be dispatched and kill them all. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it obviously is a public safety issue, but really it comes down to, you know, it's not necessary for anyone to own a tiger. 
Um, and eventually we will be able to phase out these rescues because if no one's allowed to own them privately anymore, if no one's allowed to breed them for cub petting, we're not going to need rescues, which means we can put all that time and effort and money that we've been you know, spending on rescues and sanctuaries in the US and put all of that to protecting their natural habitat and helping people on the ground in these areas, again, on a local level. So, I mean, you know, in in Africa, it's also different because, you know, you could have, um, there's been a couple cases that I've seen where big cats have been um, either in captivity or they were injured at a very young age and um, raised in captivity. And maybe they wouldn't be a good rewilding uh, candidate if they lived in the US, but because they're in Africa and because they're private game reserves that have relationships with wildlife conservation nonprofits over there, the animal can be rewilded or released into the wild at a private game reserve. So like, you know, for example, the cheetah conservation fund in Namibia, um, who I volunteered with them in 2010, 2011, um, they work very closely with the Arindi private game reserve, which is where I filmed a lot of my documentary. And they have released cheetahs from CCF at Arindi that were either, um, you know, if they, didn't have somewhere to release them, they wouldn't, they just wouldn't have been a good candidate for just being out in the wild because, um, you know, Arindi is a, a fenced in reserve and they have radio collars on these animals so they can monitor where they are and make sure that they're okay. And also fences, so they don't get out and start harassing livestock. And so it's the perfect situation for them to rewild these animals in as wild a situation in, that as exists in Africa right now, you know, whereas we just, we don't have that in the U S like it's just logistically impossible to take a, a tiger, even if it might be a good candidate and just release it into the wild. Like you can't ship it on a plane. It's going to probably die while it's being transported, you know? And also look at the genetics of that animal. It's not, you know, you don't even know what the genetics are because it's been bred by how many other captive tigers in the U S over the last, you know, couple of years. Like, so, and people like to talk about, you know, Oh, well, you know, we wouldn't have a need for sanctuaries if like, you know, this, this, and this, and then they are literally going and visiting Myrtle Beach Safari. And you're like, <laughs> we need sanctuaries because people are breeding tigers for as yeah. tourist props. And you're so. consuming it. Yeah. And Instagram and Facebook are supporting it, which is a mm. whole other conversation. But, you know, you, you look at like how social media has altered our behavior. I mean, I imagine you've thought about this quite a bit with your background in <laughs> psychology, but like, you know, it's made us behave completely differently where, you know, because of the dopamine hit, because of, you know, the validation that we get on social media, it's so, even if you're not a photographer or an influencer, you don't make money off these platforms, you know, the interaction and attention and likes on social media have the same sort of effect as drugs. So if you know that you can create content that someone somewhere will see that they'll interact with that they maybe will make viral like of course you're going to be more motivated to post the most amazing outrageous stuff that you can and that would be maybe swimming with a tiger somewhere and mm-hmm. you know that's I, I think like yeah social media is really kind of just throwing gas on this fire so yeah I, I know I'm like a broken record but I strongly believe that 95% of the composite work we see in landscape photography is for that dopamine hit whether people want to admit it or not Yeah, I think, you know, and it's the same thing there where social media has only just fueled that in a way where like before it would just be on like a photo blog or like on Reddit or someone's website or something. But now like if you can reach like a certain audience on social media that you know is subscribed to that kind of 
of imagery, then yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, I think the, the giveaway for me is how someone responds when they get negative feedback on those images. It's almost always super defensive and it's a blow to the ego. And that's how, you know, like you're just doing this for your ego. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's so funny. Cause there's been times where I'm just like, if I could be like, I I'm pretty picky. I'm definitely a perfectionist. Like I look at my own work and like so much of it, I'm just like, God, this is terrible. Like I, what a horrible <laughs> edit. Not your work, think, my work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Hey, if you looked at some of my older work, you'd be like, what were you thinking? And also oh, like, it's a horrible Photoshop job. But, um, but I think like, I am just as critical of my work as I am of others. And there are a lot of photographers whose work I absolutely love. But then there's been other times where like some friends of mine have been like, oh, have you seen this person's photography? And I'm just like, yeah, not impressed. And I mean, but of course, the people whose work that I see where I am blown away or moved and I feel something and it's like, these are the kinds of images that I go back to and look at, um, you know, and I, that I think of (laughs) not just like something I'm scrolling past. Like I, I think I give them plenty of of credit for for their work, but, um, you know, I've, I've always joked with my friends. I'm like, I wish I could leave like honest feedback on social media where where I'd just be (laughs) like, um, why is your sky green in the corner? Like, did you not like, (laughs) you know, like stuff like that, where I'm just like, just like snarky little comments to be like, you know, if I was editing my own photos, that these are things that I'd say to myself, be like, whoa, there with the contrast, like, Right. You know, and I just, but I, I think again, like it would hurt too many people's feelings. So, yeah. So who would you recommend we try to get here on the show? Well, as I had um, mentioned, um, you know, I'm a big fan of Melissa Gru's work. She's a fantastic wildlife photographer. Also would have a lot to share on the ethics end of things. Um, Savannah Cummins is one of those photographers who like whenever I see her work on my Instagram feed, I'm like, Oh, that's one of her photos just because of the way she shoots and processes. It's just so uniquely her. Um, she's also a super badass climber. Um, and I just, um, you know, I, I love, you know, finding work that's completely different from what I shoot and that I still am just wowed by. Um, trying to think who I've stumbled across recently. Um, Benjamin Everett, Oh yeah, man. uh, His, he is, I mean, he is a photographer, but like his digital art though is probably some of the best I've seen. I would love to, I'd love to hear about his processing. I I actually have exchanged a couple of emails with him. He wants to do it in person and he lives in, I think in Montana or Idaho. And it's like, I'm just like never there. So, but yeah, I would love to do that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you guys should try to make that happen. Like his work is so unique. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm like scrolling your Instagram. I, I I didn't know you're the one that was in that photo with from Mike Mez. That's mm. awesome. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was drinking some water. Yeah, that's that's me. He actually took me storm chasing for the first time. We that's met awesome. um, in Death Valley in 2000, early 2016. We were both there shooting the Super Bloom. And we met for like maybe an hour or something, just like grab, grabbed a bite to eat. And I was like, well, I'm going to go camping and shoot this in the morning. And he was just like, would you want to like maybe go like storm chase the spring? Like, you know, he didn't, I think there was like a, a certain week where like he just didn't have like a private tour booked or anything. And we just like gotten along really well and been Instagram friends for a while. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? I'm not doing anything else. And then like on our third day of chasing Dodge City happened, which was like, there were 
eight tornadoes on the ground that evening and we were like two touching down at the same time. It was like the mother of all chase days. And he's like, this never happens. I'm like, (laughs) well, still I was like, I'm hooked. Like, so I didn't chase in 2017 because I had a, a pretty big work project that spring and I was, and also like, I think Mike was like super booked up with workshops and stuff. And, and then later that year I'd actually connected with Kelly delay and, and I had mentioned him before where I was just like, his style is so much more natural than mine. And I've tried to kind of grab some from that, like, you know, after, you know, hanging out with him and cause like, we'll, we'll go chase all day and then like be like sitting editing and I'm like, Oh, what are you doing over there? So it's, um, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, I'm so glad to have connected with him. And then he was like, do you want to like, we, we had been like internet friends for a while and like had some good phone conversations. He's like, do you want to go chase? And it's just like, even when you haven't met these people and like, I only knew Mike for like, I don't know, probably like an hour. And like, you know, again, we, we have been like internet friends and stuff, but just when you really gel with someone and you're in the car with them for eight hours a day, like that's, you know, that's definitely a, sp- a special thing that you don't have with every, every other photographer. And, um, Absolutely. you know, so yeah, I've been really lucky to have connected with Mike and Kelly and to have been able to go out and shoot with them because, you know, I, um, I understand some of the basics of weather and I know how to read radar <laughs> and I know what not to do. Um, but you I certainly so would- much like I, it scares me, it scares the bejesus out of me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like getting close to it, but it's also nice to know that the person that I'm with knows more than I do. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, you know, in Kelly's case, especially like he's a little bit older than me and he has a wife and kids at home. So he's like, I, I want to come back in one piece. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I appreciate, you know, and, and Mike's super, super safe as well. And like, you know, he, he knows what he's doing and, um, but I mean, there's definitely some folks out there who are chasing who either have no idea what they're doing and they just follow other people or oh, they yeah. really push it and push it in a way where I'm like, maybe when I was in my twenties, I would have been okay with it. But now I'm kind of like, you know, I don't need to piss myself while we're driving. So, <laughs> um, right. but, but yeah, no. So like, you know, going out with, with Kelly, I just, I feel like we, um, you know, we have a lot of, um, respect for each other's work, but also like, I know that like he, and you know, the same with Mike as well, they really place a value on safety whenever they're bringing people out on like private workshops or just like we're, we're going out as friends. Like last year we shot some stuff for, um, Adobe Lightroom. So that's, that's why we went out together. But the year before that we were just going for fun. So, um, and then this year, of course, um, I was just like, if I lived in Texas, I probably would have gone out and chased with Kelly, but, having to get to Texas or Denver with COVID and all that. Oh, it was just, it's not a responsible decision for me to travel from California to there. And I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with anyone who's been chasing this season, who's local, because like, if you can just drive, like, it takes you a couple hours or something, but even then, like you're still local. If like, you can drive back home right. rather than like staying in a hotel in a small town and like touching 18 different things at like a gas station, like, you know, Cause I, when I, when I'm on the road, I live on the road. So, you know, it's not as <laughs> a germ, it's not as germ free as, you know, just coming back to the same place every night. So I think I just, you know, for me, it was that call of like, you know, yeah, it's just, we're going to have to wait until next year. And so I said to Kelly actually like last week, I was like, we better have a good season next year. Cause I don't like missing a season. So <laughs> <laughs> wanted to, you know, thank you for taking the time out of your, schedule and just really appreciate all the work you're doing in conservation and just keep up the great work. And if there's any way that uh, I can support you or if our listeners can support you, please let us know. 
Yeah, I definitely will. Well, thank you so much for having me. I definitely feel like we could keep talking for another hour, but everyone would get sick of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Right, and eventually we have to use the restroom, so... Yeah, I know. I was going to say, I'm like sitting here with this water bottle. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> <Longer. laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to Elizabeth for joining me on the podcast this week. I highly encourage you to take a look at her film and her Instagram feed for inspiration. Let her know that you heard about her over here on the podcast. I also have another challenge for listeners. Reach out to guests and thoughtfully engage with them on social media. You never know where that conversation might lead and you might find value in developing relationships with people through authentic conversation. All right, well, one quick announcement before we get to what's coming up next on the show. I am working on relaunching my YouTube channel and I've been recording a ton of videos in the field relating to my experience as a photographer and mountain climber. My hope is to show you a little bit about me and my world, my experiences, my successes, and my failures, and to help you grow as a photographer as well by learning from my mistakes. I will also be providing some tips on backpacking, hiking, and exercise as it all relates to my style of photography. If you want to get a head start, head over to YouTube and subscribe. Well, let's chat about who we have coming up on the podcast. Next up is David Brookover. Uh, David has been in the photography scene for a very long time and owns a great gallery filled with his platinum palladium prints in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We discuss his journey and the process for printing on that medium. I also recently recorded with Bree Stockwell. She's new to the scene and she challenged herself with an impossible goal to exhibit 10 photographs in 2020. And I asked her some really interesting questions that I think might help you no matter where you are we're at in your photography. We've also recorded with Felix Inden. He is a photographer living in Germany and he has a love affair with photographing in the Arctic Circle. And we have a lot of awesome other episodes planned this summer and autumn, including Mark Munch, Eric Bennett, Cole Thompson, and Jared Armijo. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.